Welcome to Private Equity Perspectives, a podcast by BDO USA's private equity practice. Each episode, BDO connects with leaders in the private equity space to discuss the latest trends driving deal activity, fund strategies, and portfolio company optimization. Welcome to BDO's Private Equity Perspectives podcast, where we explore the trends impacting middle market private equity funds today. I'm Todd Kinney, National Relationship Director in BDO's private equity practice, and I'm based here in New York City. Today, I'm excited to talk to Matt Smith, Principal at Great Cliff Partners, and Dave Affinito, Partner at Victor Capital Partners. We'll be discussing how their firms have recently conducted exits, their approach to value creation, manufacturing, and supply chain challenges, and lots more. A quick reminder to our listeners that the remarks and opinions of our guests do not necessarily represent BDO's views. And with that out of the way, I'd like to introduce our first guest, Matt Smith, Principal at Great Cliff Partners. Welcome to the show, Matt. Todd, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, our pleasure. Uh, next, we have Dave Affinito, partner at Victor Capital Partners. Dave, welcome to the show. Thanks, Todd. Happy to be here. All right. Well, before we dive into our discussion on exit strategies, financing, supply chain, and the economy, I'd like to hear from each of you about your respective roles. So, Dave, let's let's have you kick things off and tell us a little bit about your role and your firm. Great. Thanks again, Todd. So, Dave Affinito, uh, partner at Victor Capital. Uh, we're a middle market private equity firm that focuses on partnering with middle market branded consumer, industrial, and services businesses to help them achieve their full potential. All right. Thanks, Dave. Now over to you, Matt. Can you walk us through your role and tell us a little bit about your firm? Definitely. Uh, I'm Matt Smith, the principal at Greycliff Partners. Um, Greycliff was formed around a decade ago uh, as a spin-out of HSBC's private equity group. And today we manage just over a billion dollars in assets under management, providing debt and equity capital to the lower middle market. So I primarily work for the investment team on our equity side, which is a control buyout family focused on industrial businesses, predominantly all founder or family owned. Gotcha. Well, thanks for the background, guys. I want to explore a little bit more about your firm's activities. So, Dave, we'll go back to you. Uh, since Victor Capital focuses on strong brands with a mission-driven approach, maybe you can talk a little bit uh, about the uh, the types of companies that make a good fit at Victor. Sure. So at Victor Capital, we look for fundamentally good businesses with strong competitive positions in attractive markets, companies with differentiated products and or services supported by brands that can either be business to business or uh, consumer brands. Uh, and finally, you know, we're looking for management teams that are seeking a partner to really help them not only accelerate their growth uh, and, and increase their earnings, but also uh, who are looking for help to support them on their journey to strengthen their brands uh, and grow their intrinsic value. Uh, you alluded to the mission-driven element, and you know, we really find that that's an opportunity in, in uh, most of our partner companies, and we really challenge them as part of the value creation process to uh, define their mission. And for example, uh, Slipknot, which is uh, our Detroit, Michigan-based company that provides special uh, specialized safety flooring products and surface technologies, they didn't really have a mission when we met them. And through the value creation process, they determined that their mission was to provide safety and assurance from the ground up. And that's something that fits within their marketing materials, but it's also something they talk about internally uh, when they're recruiting new employees, uh, as well as externally. Um, 
you know, Slipknot has the best technologies to prevent debilitating slip and fall accidents in the workplace and pedestrian applications. And that's something that our customers really needed to know about. And so, you know, the mission is really something that workers and customers can rally around. And, you know, we believe that uh, it's important to define that as, as part of our process. All right. Well, certainly agree. We're definitely uh, seeing more companies express an interest in, in crafting their mission. And I also agree, you know, that for portfolio companies to see long-term success, the fundamental service they provide needs to be strong and for sure their market solid. So I appreciate that, Dave. Matt, over to you. Can you talk a little bit about how you work with your portfolio companies at Greycliffe? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the first thing I noticed, we don't really have a playbook. Uh, we see every opportunity in every management team. We, we believe that it requires its own bespoke game plan uh, that might need to be adjusted on the fly, uh, given changing economic, business, or personnel conditions. Uh, and, and we found that this resonates more uh, with ownership than, than just a cookie cutter approach. Uh, most importantly, we believe you have to have an alignment with, with ownership and management before you close. Uh, and, and that's a really important part of our, our diligence process. Um, so we offer what I, I'll call traditional support, things like financial analysis and executive recruiting. But I think the most uh, important thing we do for our portfolio companies is, is more outside the box thinking at, at the board level, uh, often with the help of independent industry executives. Um, we found that especially with family and founder-owned businesses, um, We've employed this the same approach to their business for they've employed the same approach to their business for sometimes decades, uh, which does lead to steady growth. But slight tweaks to that formula are sometimes needed to lead step change growth that really drives returns. Uh, so as, as an example of this, we have a company called Ingredients Plus, which, which distributes sweeteners and other ingredients to large food and snack manufacturers. Uh, the company had large demand from uh, the central Pennsylvania area, but that geography is pretty difficult to fulfill from our upstate New York headquarters. Uh, our solution was purchasing and integrating a short line railroad uh, in the Lancaster, Pennsylvania area. Uh, and you wouldn't think that a sugar distributor would typically be in the rail business, but the acquisition was immediately synergistic, uh, both significantly reducing our freight costs and allowing us to service increased demand from the area. Yeah, well, certainly uh, making sure you have the right fit with ownership and management uh, definitely needs to be established, you know, I think is a baseline for creating long-term value. So, Matt, we're going to stay with you. You mentioned the uh, strategic integration for in, uh, Ingredients Plus. We've certainly seen add-on acquisitions become more commonplace for many of our clients in recent years. Perhaps you could share with our listeners uh, how Greatcliffe approaches add-on acquisitions as well as really any advice you have for how to make sure uh, an integration is successful. So add-ons have become increasingly important to us at Greycliffe. And I think the sectors that we work with lend themselves to inorganic growth. Uh, that said, we also don't have a playbook on the add-on add side. Um, how we approach acquisitions depends on the size of the opportunity, uh, whether it's an asset or equity deal, things of that nature. But the most important thing on the integration side is to ensure that you're aligned with management. Um, at the end of the day, they're the ones who are going to be driving both combined businesses going forward. Uh, and this should start early before candidate acquisitions are even identified, um, ensuring that everyone is on board with, with the criteria you have and, and the general long-term strategy. So other than the nuts and bolts of integration, uh, we think it's important to consider the company's culture. Uh, a company can make perfect sense for an add-on uh, on paper, uh, but if you don't work with management to ensure that there's a cultural fit, uh, it'll make the process much more difficult in the long run. 
Yeah. All right. Appreciate all that, Matt. Over to Dave. You know, I'm curious, Victor Capital, maybe you could share with our listeners uh, your experience with uh, add-on acquisitions and how do you ensure they are successful? Uh, thanks, Todd. I'm going to echo uh, some of what Matt said here, but we've completed eight uh, strategic add-on acquisitions across our initial uh, five portfolio companies. And for us, uh, we're always being very proactive at bringing acquisition ideas to the table, but uh, it's important, first of all, that it fits the mission and strategy uh, of our company, and it makes us better, not just bigger. Um, and, and the second key factor uh, that ultimately leads directly to integration is what Matt just said. You have to have management alignment from the beginning. And when you're first looking at the target, you have to have them meeting with the management team or the owner early and often. Because uh, ultimately, they're the ones who really own the, own the company, own the integration process. And, and so that's really the, the key element for us. Um, you know, we recently closed an acquisition for Slipknot uh, called Amstep. Very interesting uh, acquisition. And the, uh, as an example of how we like to think about integration, the day we closed, our CEO and HR leader were on site to meet and engage with the employees and help address questions about benefits, about who Slipknot was. And from there, the support um, you know, continued from finance, IT, marketing, HR as a follow-up. But we really believe it's important to, to communicate clearly and to have management really aligned on the acquisition. Yeah, yeah. Well, clearly, uh, add-ons are a big part of your uh, overall strategy, doing it at uh, three of your companies. So appreciate that uh, additional insight. And Dave, I'll stay with you. Uh, for this next one, uh, perhaps you could share Victor Capital's approach to value creation for its businesses. Yeah, thanks, Todd. The, uh, at Victor Capital, it's really important to us, first of all, that management leads the strategic planning process in partnership with our team and some outside resources. We firmly believe that it has to be management's plan. Um, it can't be our plan. Um, and we really find most companies have hundreds of good ideas and what we bring to our partners, partner companies is uh, a process through which they can analyze the, those ideas and really winnow them down into a handful of strategic priorities that are core to the company's DNA, where they have a right to win, and that will grow the intrinsic value of the business. You know, we then work with them to help identify the resources to execute on those strategic priorities, as well as the KPIs to measure our collective success against those goals. Um, from a resource perspective, we find that companies in our part of the market generally have needs across strategic functions. And it's, it's nothing to be embarrassed about, but marketing, accounting, IT are typically things that family-owned businesses or entrepreneurial businesses uh, have not invested in. And you know, we can bring to the table bespoke variable resources that can help uh, support the existing team, or we, we help them recruit full-time leaders to strengthen the functions and, and to enable the company to, to scale. Um, finally, and we're like a broken record with this, uh, value creation comes in our mind from three basic drivers. Uh, that's really simple math, earnings growth, free cash flow, and intrinsic value creation. And we, we like to assess that annually with our teams and really use those three tenets as, as the key measuring sticks. Yeah, I certainly, uh, I like those three, uh, basic drivers, you know, they're certainly key and that's a great takeaway for our, uh, our listeners. So thank you. So Matt, back over to you. Uh, different top. Maybe you can uh, tell the listeners how Greycliff uh, approaches deal sourcing. 
Sure, happy to do so. Um, so I actually think that uh, the deal sourcing can be even more difficult in the lower middle market, uh, given just the general uh, dynamic with intermediaries. Um, there might be only a few dozen firms uh, that can focus on selling companies with 50 million plus of, of EBITDA. Uh, but for companies in the lower middle market, and especially those with less than 10 million of EBITDA, there can be thousands and thousands of brokers who might only do a deal or two a year. Uh, and it's often from those counterparties that you can find some of the strongest deals in the market. Um, they'll re require you to roll up your sleeves, but um, allow for the opportunity to find value. Um, so uh, kind of as a result of that, we we employ more of a, a team-based approach to uh, sourcing at Greycliffe. Um, we do have an individual who heads our, our BD function, does a fantastic job, uh, but part of his job is ensuring that the team covers a, a broad swath of the market. Um, so each of us might have uh, several dozen firms uh, that we reach out to on a quarterly basis to hear what's going on um, and to see if there are any opportunities. Um, in general, I, there are two things I think uh, that I found helps uh, most with deal sourcing. Um, the first is hustle and the second is consistency. Um, I think hustle is critical as, as everyone in this industry can have short memories and it's important to stay in front of intermediaries to make sure that you've got the latest deal flow and, and you're on their minds. Uh, and this includes going to uh, events and making sure you set up meetings whenever you have, happen to be in the area. Uh, but it's also important to be consistent. Uh, each member of your team needs to be able to tell the story of, of the firm well, uh, emphasizing uh, what types of deals um, to look for, you're looking for, uh, which helps counterparties find the right deal for you. Um, so I, in the end, I think hustle ensures quantity uh, and consistency ensures quality. Yeah, great points. I certainly have a lot of friends that are uh, responsible for uh, the deal sourcing, Matt, at different private equity firms. And uh, I think hustle and consistency are uh, a great way to describe the ones that I think are doing it the best. So appreciate uh, both the uh, both of the uh, great insights that you guys have been uh, offering so far. At this point, I, now I want to turn it over to our coffee break guests. We're going to discuss issues around partnership taxation and BDO's partnership tax services. Hi, I'm Jeff Bilski, partner in BDO's National Tax Office, focusing primarily on complex partnership transactions and private equity funds. With me today is Blake Stevens. Yeah, I'm, I'm Blake Stevens. I'm a tax partner in BDO Specialized Tax Services Partnership Practice, and I, I focus on partnership computational services, modeling, and generally speaking, tax compliance driven by industry-leading technology. Great. So today we're excited to talk about partnership taxation and private equity funds. I'd like to start by providing a brief overview of the current partnership taxation landscape and the potential implications to private equity funds, their investors, and their managers. Starting on a positive note, with a few exceptions, we didn't see a lot of significant legislative activity this past year. And with the split Congress, the upcoming year is likely to be similar. However, Treasury and the IRS are continuing their steady march towards greater reporting transparency for entities taxed as partnerships. These, of course, include private equity funds and flow-through portfolio investment companies. For the past several years, we've seen significant changes to partnership tax return disclosure requirements intended to increase the IRS's ability to identify potential tax issues. These disclosure requirements, coupled with a significant increase in investment around partnership audits and government-favorable partnership audit rules, show that the IRS is finally getting serious about increasing the breadth of their partnership audit activities. 
in our practice, we've been observing a steady increase in IRS exam activity, along with a focus on issues that appear to be identifiable through a review of the increased tax return disclosures. While we continue to work very closely with our clients to ensure tax return positions are carefully evaluated and well-documented, it's critical that funds ensure they're fully and accurately disclosing operating activities and transactions. In my view, accurate preparation and disclosure of the fund's tax return is the first and potentially most important step in successful audit defense. The complexity and volume of data that needs to be analyzed, calculated, and processed to prepare an accurate tax return can be overwhelming. Realistically, the key to success is a combination of partnership tax expertise and leading edge technology. To that point, I should stop talking now and let the real expert, Blake, talk about how to properly combine technical expertise with partnership tax-focused technology. Thanks, Jeff. Yeah, you know, as you mentioned, there's been a sig significant changes in the reporting requirements for partnerships and the magnitude of disclosures um, required for partnerships is a bit daunting to say the least. I mean, from 199A to 926, new schedule K2, K3, it can all just be a bit overwhelming. And that's why BDO developed our Partnership Capital Account Solution, or PICASO, P-C-A-S-O. PICASO streamlines the compliance process by standardized footnote disclosures, and it provides the ability then to tier those disclosures from one partnership to another, and ultimately to the final taxpayers without having to manage Manually input that data time and time again. So the, the data here is the key. Picasso is built on a SQL database, which can gather and safely house data to support complex business decisions, which means the tax compliance process becomes much more efficient and accurate and actually a tool to help you run your business. In other words, BDO's Picasso technology integrates the management of economic and tax basis capital with the partnership tax reporting process, providing partnerships and their partners key insights and data to make more informed decisions. You can even take that a step further with BDO's partnership portrait technology. Partnership Portrait is a customizable dashboard that integrates with Picasso to provide a snapshot of the value of your investments. Whether you're looking for IRR, ROI, MOI, or any other number of acronyms, Partnership Portrait can dashboard the data you need to run your business more efficiently. You can learn more about BDO's Picasso solution as well as Partnership Portrait at BDO.com front slash resources front slash PCASO. Thanks for that. Now back to our conversation with Matt Smith and Dave Affinito. So I know you guys both recently had successful exits and it would be great to get both of your perspectives on that process. So Dave, let's start with you. Can you talk about Victor Capital's sale of Primaloft and if there were any challenges of securing a favorable price in the current environment? Thanks, Todd. Yeah, yes, the current environment is challenging. Yep. And we were very sad to say goodbye to the uh, Primaloft uh, team back in July. It was our first portfolio company is Victor Capital. We became very close with uh, with management. Um, we sold the company for $530 million to uh, Compass Diversified. It was a brilliant outcome with everyone at the company participating in the liquidity event. Um, it, it, exit for us is really all about preparation. Uh, even in good times and bad times, uh, preparation is key. We believe it's important to have a diligence dry run well in advance of a planned exit to identify and address any issues, uh, having sell side reports available to prospective buyers, and their third-party teams also helps to streamline the diligence process and maintain the timeline. 
Additionally, we think it's critical to prepare for tough questions in advance with answers supported by data. Uh, beyond the final year, we, we also believe planning for an exit starts at the outset and we make it a key tenant of our value creation process. So uh, for us, being ruthlessly prepared allowed us to uh, weather the, the storm of the difficult market conditions and still drive a great outcome, even as there was market turmoil uh, this year. Yeah, well, I completely agree. Proper planning is crucial and uh, the diligence dry run, that's a great idea. So thanks for sharing that one. Matt, over to you. Uh, I know Greycliff uh, recently sold Worldwide Electric. Uh, maybe you can share some insights on that process. Yeah, definitely. Um, so uh, we recently exited Worldwide, uh, which was a, a manufacturer and distributor of electrical motors for industrial end markets. So uh, any powering anything from conveyors to, to turbines. Um, and I think the company really exemplifies how Greycliff uh, looks to add value. So when, when we acquired it, it, um, it, it was really focused on importing uh, motors uh, from China. So they're a mo motor importer. Um, they, they had a departing CEO and president um, uh, who founded the company uh, and that significant end market concentration within industries like oil and gas. Um, but over the three to four years of, of our ownership, we um, onboarded really a first class management team, uh, made three acquisitions and, and helped transform the business into a diverse manufacturer uh, and distributor of, of branded flow control products. Um, as you noted, 2022 is definitely at challenges regarding uncertainty with specific end markets and a turbulent financing market. Um, but part of our job is mitigating the concerns a, a buyer is going to have over the course of our investment. So we knew that buyers would want end market diversity. So we um, we branched out and broadened our customer base, both organically and inorganically. Um, we decreased our reliance on China by beginning operations in India and other countries we knew uh, when we knew that sourcing concentration would be an issue especially with current supply chain woes. Uh, and having a, a really strong uh, management team in place can can help lead the business to its next stage of, of growth. Uh, it's it's absolutely critical in, in getting the right exit. So when it comes to that exit, uh, and, and once you've completed your, your strategic agenda, the right buyer is going to ask those questions. So to Dave's point, having strong and data-backed answers can really help secure a positive outcome. Um, and it's also critical to hire a, a banker who knows the space well, and just as importantly, uh, knows uh, buyers that are gonna find the most value in the asset, which is uh, which is what we did in this process. Yeah, certainly, I like that last point. And a lot of our clients uh, are always saying how the, uh, the right banker can uh, certainly make a difference in ensuring a smooth exit process. So thanks there. That brings up my next question, and Matt, I'm going to stay with you. You uh, you talked a little bit about uh, how you diversified operations beyond China in that uh, last answer. Would appreciate your perspective on uh, what we can expect from supply chains in 2023, and how you think that might impact middle market manufacturing business. Yeah. Um... So, I mean, no one has a, a crystal ball when it comes to to supply chains, uh, especially in the the uh, the long term or even in the near term. But um, we anticipate things like freight costs um, are going to continue to to normalize. Um, but we also think that the process is going to take some time. Um, you know, when when some items that took that used to take weeks to get from an OEM overseas can can now take eighteen months. Um, so while we certainly come across several companies that have been hurt by the supply chain, 
we've also seen many domestic companies that have benefited actually um, as customers, as their customers are willing to pay up just to receive go uh, their goods on a, on a reasonable time frame. Um, and I think now it's critical for those businesses to continue to look to add value to those customers they gained uh, beyond just timely delivery. I think once the supply chain fully normalizes and delivery costs and delivery timing comes back to earth, um, they're going to be at risk of losing those kind of newfound customers that they gain unless they can prove uh, their worth during this window of, of general turbulence. Yeah, thanks, Matt. So Dave, similar question to you. Do you have any predictions for uh, opportunities and challenges for the uh, middle market manufacturing sector in 2023? You know, I, I think, Todd, the um, challenges are going <laughs> to remain similar to what we've seen recently, which is an increased demand for domestic manufacturing uh, running into uh, supply chain constraints, labor shortages, uh, inflation. And so a lot of companies are, are looking to leverage technology, automation to, uh, you know, to meet that demand in a cost-effective way. And I, I think that's, that's the trend you're likely to see continue uh, next year and really long term um, that that I think we would love to take advantage of. Right. Yeah. Well, I know supply chain issues may uh, not be as acute as they were the last couple of years, but they are certainly uh, still a pain point for, for many of our manufacturing clients. So, all right. Now I want to uh, switch gears a bit and discuss how private equity is responding to the uh, economic conditions. I'm sure most of the listeners knew we were going to get there eventually. So, the question is, to what degree is the skittish financing market impacting deals in the middle market? And do you expect direct lending to play even more of a role in your transactions? Uh, Dave, I guess for this one, I'll just throw this one out to you and please share your thoughts. You know, we, we see direct lending companies that focus on the lower middle market um, as still being in business. They're still open for business and they are being more discerning on the quality of the businesses they're willing to finance. They're being more cautious on leverage levels uh, and requiring wider spreads. And the, the result has been uh, what we've seen is just processes slowing down. You know, things had really accelerated, uh, you know, leading up until maybe mid the middle of the year in terms of process timelines. And, and we're seeing things really slow down right now as people call more lenders, as lenders move slowly. Um, and uh, I expect that to continue well into next year. Okay, interesting. Yes, we're, we, we've definitely noticed a slowdown as well. So we'll see how things play out in uh, early to mid-2023. So believe it or not, guys, we're at the uh, my final question for both of you. And that is, what opportunities do you see for middle market private equity as valuations have come down and businesses experience this challenging economic environment? Uh, Matt, I'm going to kick it off and let you uh, share your thoughts, and then we'll go to Dave. Yeah. Yeah. Uh so kind of starting with the deal sourcing side, we found that sometimes market turbulence uh, often will create opportunities um, in general and accelerate a company's decision to sell. Um, we typically invest in, uh, or we've invested before in businesses that are cyclical. Uh, and what comes to those types of assets, it's it's really our job to determine the stability of the underlying platform and its ability to, to bounce back after a cycle. Um, we we actually embrace this volatility and complexity as an opportunity to roll up our sleeves um, as it's where we made some of our best returns. Um, and 
during this process, one issue we've also been had during diligence is, you know, what is this business's true real base profitability? Uh, it's a tougher question to answer than just reading financial statements, uh, as we've seen COVID and inflation cause uh, significant volatility in earnings. Um, we've seen a lot of processes stalled uh, as, as parties just wait for financials to just normalize. Um, and so I think in some regards, an upcoming cycle will allow companies uh, and, and private equity firms to see the true resiliency of earnings for certain assets that have been in question for, for a while now. Um, and so while we do believe there's opportunity in a cycle, it, it's critical to make sure that you are prepared in advance um, for the, the portfolio companies that, that you do have. Um, so um, we've asked ourselves, you know, do we have uh, manageable leverage? Um, have we prepared a downside case? Um, and are all the right pieces in place for management to navigate during a challenging time? You can't predict exactly uh, what's going to happen, um, but we constantly work with our portfolio to ensure that we're at least prepared in a variety of cases. Sure, sure. Well, I think there are there are definitely opportunities if you look for them, regardless of economic cycles. So Dave, um, last question over to you. Same question. What opportunities do you see for middle market private equity in the current environment? I think uh, 2023 is going to be an attractive year uh, for fundamental focus private equity buyers who are really bringing value to their partner companies. Uh, those who use modest leverage, where the models are less impacted by higher rates, uh, lower levels of interest, and those who drive value through uh, strategic initiatives, support of their companies, resources. Um, I'm also expecting to see more traditional recapitalization transactions in which owners retain meaningful equity uh, as likely becoming more common. You know, businesses owners who are really looking to diversify their net worth, de-risk given the, the economic environment we're in, but they're also looking for a true partner who can, who can help them weather the storm uh, and, and you know, come out the other end even stronger. Um, so we think it's going to be an interesting year and uh, we're looking forward to it. Awesome, guys. Well, that's a wrap for this episode. I want to thank you both for coming on the show and providing uh, what was really a productive discussion with a lot of great takeaways for uh, folks in the uh, private equity space. So, Dave, Matt, thanks to both of you. Thanks, Todd. Todd, thanks so much for having us. Yeah, of course. All right. To our listeners, thanks so much for tuning in. If you haven't already, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and leave a review of the show on Apple Podcasts. Until next time. This is BDO's Private Equity Perspectives. The views presented by our guests do not necessarily reflect the views of their respective firms. 